today on 2C Fans. So what, so what got you interested in looking at these blue holes I'm, in the Gulf of Mexico? Um, I've known about them for a long time. Um, it was shortly after I came to Florida, which goes back late 70s and 80s. Problem is most of them were offshore. Our podcast is like karst. It is full of holes. <laughs> Ooh, nice reference to our guest today, Haley. <laughs> who, who is our guest today, Haley? Okay, so first... Yeah, I'm recording now, right? Who is our guest today, Haley? So we Haley. are... Who's our guest today? <laughs> <laughs> we are delighted to bring you another episode of 2C Fans at Mo. Delighted. I'm Haley Rutger, and I'm also... And I'm a... Interrupting <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Perpetually interrupting Haley Rutger, and this is... Interrupting Joe Nicholson. Nicholson. <laughs> and that was our most awkward start to a podcast But yet. it was awesome. Yeah. Dare I say, friggin' awesome. Don't make fun of me. I'm not. Okay. Just so because you're really excited about our last interview. What was your question again to me? Um, I forget. Who is our guest? Who is our guest? <laughs> Jim Coulter is uh, our benthic ecology program manager here at Moat, and he has um, some pretty awesome science and adventure stories for us from uh, Blue Holes. Do you know what those are? I do, actually. Why don't you tell us? Well, Blue Holes are sinkholes or, or springs, remnant springs that are covered by water and um, because of their great depth below the water, below the seafloor, they, they look darker or bluer um, than the surrounding I'm going to interrupt you yeah, right you're, now. You're interrupting me. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to have uh, Jim actually come, come on in and tell us, in his opinion, what a blue hole is. Did Joe get it right? <laughs> yeah. Jim, or may I call you Jamez? Well, just whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no one told me what I was getting into when I agreed to this. No, and they I didn't, didn't. And I didn't listen to any other podcasts, so um, I'm a little naive in this. But um, yeah, he got it basically right because the term blue hole is really a popular nomenclature, um, which was based on those that were visible from if you're doing flying over them, like the Great Blue Hole in Belize. And you can see them as features because, as Joe mentioned, they're holes in the bottom of the sea. And because they're they're great depth, they appear blue, at least in uh, clear tropical waters. Um, the technical aspects of, of what these are in Florida would be more properly called karst topography, and that's a landscape which is formed from the dissolution of soluble rocks such as limestone and uh, dolomites and other rocks that, when water runs through them, they dissolve. They form cavities and voids. Uh, cracks and crevices, and that's called a karst topography. And it's and like that, the caves or sinkholes yeah. you find on land as well. Exactly the same. But that these is, are buried by water. Or correct. Covered that by is water. karst topography. Yeah, that's, karst. It's, it's fractured limestone, and in the case of Florida, full of cracks, crevices, sinkholes, caves, springs. And that's because Florida is a large limestone platform. Uh, which and that that platform actually extends from the Bahamas, the Grand Bahamas banks, all the way across to West Florida. It uh, goes that far. Yes, um, there's it's the Bahamas banks are somewhat separated by the Gulf Stream, but it's all part of the same geologic uh, formation, if you will. And um, so, are there like are there blue holes all along that span? Like, where can you find them? 
There are some blue holes occur at pretty much anywhere you can find um, the course topography, yeah. which is submerged, and you know, uh, and that's all. You know, that's all it is. It's just a, a way that geologic features were formed. So they do occur worldwide. Some of them are different in their sources than what we have in Florida, um, and they're better studied than many other regions. They occur in lakes and river and some river systems and along coasts. Uh, submarine springs, not the same type of formation, but are, are better studied in areas like the Mediterranean. And some of these springs have volcanic origins, where the uh, fissures allow deep, warm water to actually escape into the um, surrounding oceans. So what, so what got you interested in looking at these blue holes in the Gulf of Mexico? Um, I've known about them for a long time. Um, even shortly after I came to Florida, which goes back into the late 70s and 80s. Problem is most of them were offshore, so you needed a boat to get to and require advanced diving techniques. And I didn't have the means at that time to get out and research these. Now, nevertheless, there were fishermen and some sport divers who dove on them. Um, and so I, I knew about them and they were, I guess what mostly got me interested in is they're just undescribed habitats in terms of scientific literature in, in Florida and in the United States. They're just novel, um, uncommon habitats that are very unique and no one's ever studied them before. Now I'm going to make you toot your own horn and say, are you the first one to, to document some of these scientifically? Scientifically, yes. yes. Um, as far wow. as I know, um, at least on the shelf region, we're the only group that's working on them. Um, there have been a few very deep holes studied by um, Harbor Branch. They made mm -hmm. a trip in submersible submarine, and, the, and they're much, much deeper. They're you know, a thousand feet or more deep, and they may have a different formation uh, history than the uh, ones on the West Florida shelf. Now, I know yeah. that I, from talking to Jim over my time at Mode, I know that he is a, an amazingly good diver um, in places like Blue Holes that would scare the heck out of me. So what does it take? Um, how deep are you going and what do you have to do to get down there? Yeah, it is kind of what you'd say. It's kind of a specialty area of diving and particularly of scientific diving. The, um, cause there's, there's several caveats. I mean, you know, recreational diving typically goes through 30 to 60 feet. And, you know, and that's to see the exciting things that are in those depth levels, reefs and other things near the surface. The further you get offshore, which is where most of these holes are, and I'll explain how why they're mostly offshore at this point, or a little bit later, but further offshore you go, the deeper the water gets. So by the time you want to visit a blue hole, it automatically comes to that. At that point, is a deeper dive. Mm -hmm. So you need more experience and skills for doing deeper dives because the logistics are greater, and the risk becomes higher if you're not properly trained. And then, because a lot of these sites are... You go into the ground, essentially going in a cavern zone, and some of them are caves. They're actually cave dives. Yeah. Well, then you need additional training because it becomes a, a cave habitat you're diving. And they become deep cave habitats because they're offshore. So not only do you have to have cave training, then you get into things like um, decompression diving, where you have to take more time coming up and stage your ascent. And also with diving mixed gas, often referred to as trimix, because... As you go deeper, you start to experience effects of nitrogen narcosis, yeah. um, which is kind of a narcotic effect that it has on the divers. And you, if you're doing scientific diving, particularly for safety reasons and for reasons of documenting your dive, you don't want to be have narcosis. Yeah. 
-hmm. So you use Trimix, which gets rid of that, but it's just another level of training and complexity to the dive. You have to have more equipment too. It takes a lot more equipment. Everything so not just any any person can get a boat, strap no. on a tank, and go down and not safely. Um, and you also want divers that are relatively level-headed, not prone to be overly excitable or panic. So like, okay, so say that I'm, I, I get all the training and I go down there and I've got, I don't know, my rope and my light and whatever. I, the first thing that would happen is I would like run into the wall, I would stir up the sediment, I would get all turned around, flipped over, and then I would... And then freak out. Then I would knock my head on something and be knocked out. Would I be dead <laughs> at that point? Uh, yeah. Would that be dead? I would, well... Would that be an automatic death? can't speak death? for Jim, but I would, I would say you would be dead. Okay. See, I don't think I have the temperament. No. Well, temperament, yeah, that's a large part of it. You have to have the yeah. proper temperament and then training. Hopefully, if, if you had the right temperament, the training would enable you not to have that first experience. You said the word history earlier. Yeah. And speaking of history, um, that is another component of these, these holes or springs that we find offshore, isn't it? Is there not the possibility of some kind of archaeological finds or, or evidence of uh, early early man? Yeah, that's a possibility. And I mentioned earlier the way these things formed. Okay, they're right now they're submarine, and most of the ones on this coast are greater than 25 miles offshore. They probably were once closer, but they're, they've been filled in by the movement of sand and shell along the bottom from storms. As you get further offshore, you get about the 100-foot level of depth or so. Even hurricanes have very little influence on moving the bottom sediments. So the sites further offshore have likely, likely formed at a different period in, in, in history. Um, if you go back in the last, and they can only form when sea level was lower and water actually flows through these karst topography. Um, you have to have moving water. So at lower sea level, about eight to 12,000 years ago, the, much of the Florida shelf was exposed. And because so, of the ice age. Because of the ice, you know, a small ice age, there was more ice locked up water in the ice caps, and sea level was lower by a significant amount. So these features could have been forming at that time because the rainwater would dissolve rock and flow through the rocks. Now, coincidentally, from what we know about archaeology, um, from places like Warm Mineral Springs and Little Salt Springs, they have artifacts from those areas that have been carbon dated back to about between eight and 12,000 years. So at lower sea level stand, 8, 12,000 years ago, we had a broad Florida shelf. We had the formation of sinkholes and there were springs, which would be likely attractants for people because they need fresh water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And generally on karst topography, which there's not a lot of sediment overlying, um, freshwater sources are more scarce. So much as the Yucatan Peninsula is, has cenotes and but not many rivers or lakes, uh, the carbonate platform of Florida that people would have depended upon these water sources, you know, for fresh water. Hmm. So that gets back to your question, could they be of significance? Yeah, there could be archaeological artifacts in the bottom of, of these sites because they were exposed at the same time we know people were on the Florida Peninsula. Are those, uh, when you're talking about um, warm mineral springs and saying things 8 to 12,000 years old, does that include the stuff that our moat founder Jeannie Clark helped to find? There were some old uh, human remains in there? Yeah, and that was, goes all the way back into the 50s. Yeah. When a volunteer at the lab, a guy by the name of um, Bill Royal. Colonel Bill Royal, yeah. 
ex-military person was diving in all these sinks and springs he could find, and he discovered human artifacts in warm mineral springs hmm. on a ledge that I think is about 60 feet deep or so. I'm not sure of the depth, but um, well, he, he, people didn't believe him because the established archaeological thought at that time was there were no people in Florida at that time period. Um, so it couldn't be. They thought they were recent, more recent um, artifacts. Well, Jeannie was with them on a dive, and they just happened to have somebody who was filming with an old 15-millimeter camera in underwater housing, and they found a human skull under sediment on this ledge. Um, and they have it on, on film, so they're accused of being a big hoax, because how could that happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they pulled the skull out. Um, they took samples of it. And actually, within the skull, there was this black, waxy substance and they, that uh, Jeannie described as you know, this dark mass, and she thought, well, they need to analyze it. Well, the human brain has a lot of cholesterol in it, so there's a lot of, it was like this fatty black mass in there. And they had that carbon dated, and that dated back to about uh, eight to 10,000 years before wow. the present. Nice. And that was in the early 1960s, I think, when uh -huh. they had that done. So I want to hear about, like, what kind of animals live around and in these blue holes, and can you give us sort of a vivid description of going down into one? Why do you describe this as a reef in reverse? Okay. Um, first, if you think about locations, they're offshore, and usually surrounding the holes is either, the bottom is either shell or sand. It's not limestone rocks. So there's not typically a lot of stuff growing on the bottom around them, things that would need support structure. So as you get closer to the hole, you might have an area that's, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet, or maybe a little bit more, we start to see increasing uh, vertical reef fauna like gorgonians and sponges and other things, maybe some solitary corals or small coral heads. Is the gorgonian a soft coral? Yes. Okay. And so you, as you get closer to the exposed limestone, to the hole itself, that type of fauna increases. And it's very much like a reef. Um, but it's a low low relief at that point reef and so you have pelagic fishes you have fishes living around the crevices you have the sponges and um, the corals and when you get right around the reef edge itself instead of going up and rising like a stony coral reef would in the keys it drops down it's a vertical drop into a hole and so these are island habitats essentially you have vast areas that are just not particularly reef areas are productive and then you have these rocky Exposed areas have lots of marine life around them. Like an oasis. Yeah, an oasis. And, um, you know, it's, they're in biology, be like considered an island habitats. So the fauna has to be recruited from outside systems to colonize there. Um, so we haven't investigated the genetics of these areas, but they might be unique for some of the sessile species who can't move great distances sure. um, in terms of their, their um, genetic composition. But as you, so the fauna is most abundant, you'll have. Like you mentioned, uh, a lot of animals. You also have algae, marine algae around the rim, so a source of primary production. A lot of pelagics hang out there, particularly amberjack. Mm -hmm. We think these sites could be offshore, the offshore spawning sites for amberjack, because mm -hmm. nobody's really ever identified where amberjacks spawn. And they aggregate around these holes constantly. You'll see sea turtles, um, they're quite common at these sites. Uh, nurse sharks, there's almost always one or two nurse sharks sitting on the ledges or around the edge. Um, occasionally we see larger pelagic animals, usually on decompression we'll see some of the um, pelagic sharks who like to see what you are and then leave. I've even heard tell of whale sharks. 
Whale shark, yes. Yeah. We had really? I had one experience off Sarasota at a site called the Amberjack Hole. And there was probably for 20 minutes, we, we were coming out of the hole and going up and slow decompression ascent. Uh, a whale shark swam around us for probably 20 minutes and just kept us company circling around. And he would come in close enough that you could touch him or he would really? he'd, he'd actually look you right in your mask, right in your eye, his <laughs> oh eyeball looking right in your eye. So it was really kind of it was interesting how was cool. how curious he was, wow. and it was a very fascinating, beautiful animal. Yeah, well, that's that's about as vivid, vivid as it gets right there. But then you go down, and it, it becomes less uh, vivid. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Things change rapidly around these holes, which is one of the things that makes them so interesting. It's not a uniform habitat. Mm -hmm. um, when you enter the hole and you go down anywhere from 10 to 20 feet in the hole, the temperature will change sharply. But, but we have to remind people like the hole, you say go down 10 or 20 feet into the hole, but the hole is already maybe 60, 80, 100 feet below yeah, the typical surface hole might of the be water. Yeah, say we go to a typical one, it might be 125 feet to the rim. Mm -hmm. So you go now down another 10 or 15 feet, you get another thermocline. That's usually a very strong one. Um, or a thermocline, a rapid change in temperature. Rapid change in temperature. Yeah. The fish don't seem to mind that so much. They'll go in and out of it at will. Um, but as soon as you start entering the hole, the light starts to dim, and you do see a change in the fauna. You see a decrease in your biodiversity. So you have this thin rim of very high biodiversity, and then it starts to decline as you go deeper. Hmm. So there'll be several ledges, and then usually below the last ledge, which might be 30 feet or so down into the hole, it'll start to curve back and the, the wall becomes a slanted ceiling. It's kind of like you imagine just a large inverted funnel. Mm. And so the ceiling slopes back and the marine life declines even more as you go deeper, mm. um, less light. And finally, the last thing you see on the walls are little tiny tube worms. They're calcareous tubes. They build these little spiral tubes. Sometimes they're elongate. Um, some people say they remind them of spaghetti, but they're small. And we think they probably feed on the bacteria, perhaps sulfur bacteria, that are present in these deeper waters. Because the last um, thermocline you will hit, and it's often the um, halocline, it, you might see a cloud, and that's usually a bacterial cloud or, or suspended sediment, and usually it's anoxic below that. There's no oxygen. Mm. And the, um, the, you know, because you'll detect a hydrogen sulfide odor, which is, characteristic of that layer. And below that, there is no marine life um, other than bacteria. And so that's kind of a dead zone once you go below that layer. And that can fluctuate where it's at. It's not always consistent. And there's a debris or silt pile in the bottom as well, right? Correct. In a sinkhole, what, ha what has happened, of course, is that it used to be a cave and the roof collapsed. Well, that starts the central debris pile. And then as marine debris and other stuff and um, marine life, dead life, accumulates in the hole, it makes this what's called a debris pile right in the center, straight down from the hole. And it's not so thick near the edges. So that would be the site to, you know, we've always um, wanted to do a geologic core in the debris pile to see if then we could look at the different, you know, it might tell us something about climate change if we mm -hmm. get a long enough core, because it's been, you know, because you have basically for at least 12,000 years probably undisturbed sediment accumulating mm -hmm. in the bottom of that hole. In the past few years, we've been seeing lionfish at virtually every site. Uh, um, that's becoming a problem. So they're becoming an issue. Yeah. yeah, even the deepest ones we've been to, 60 miles, or we were 90 miles offshore, 
in about 225 feet of water, and there were lionfish around a, really? a solution pit. Um, and we didn't see many other fish around there, so that was disturbing. There was, there was lots and lots of lionfish. I have the same feelings about cockroaches and lionfish. Except that I wouldn't eat a cockroach. <laughs> so let's just stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. Oh, my God. <clears throat> so, no. what's, so what's next for uh, uh, yeah. Blue Holes in the Gulf of Mexico and, and beyond? Well, we're, we're working on, of course, the biggest problem always is the same thing with science, is trying to find the funding to do these things. We had a small grant a few years back from NOAA, Ocean Exploration, and then, of course, the which kind of got this whole thing started, at least in a formal way. Mm. Um, and then we had the Reef Plate Grant. Um, and now we're working on some private money, and we're trying to do additional descriptions of, the, of chemistry and trying to get a better grip on the biodiversity of these sites and how that's functioning. And if, if, if uh, it doesn't, you know, if people don't support it, we don't know anything about these blue holes because you guys are among the only ones doing this, right? Correct, yeah, and it's not, you know, it's not, and it's not on anybody's radar right now as being an important issue, mm -hmm. but it helps define what's going on on the shelf, and, you know, it's part of the, there could be a lot more of them out there, we don't know, because the Florida continental shelf is not very well mapped. It disturbs me a little bit. We have to learn more about these systems because as we go into the future, there's more and more talk about development of oil and gas reserves and using fracking in Florida. There's a lot more to be explored with these. And, uh, and, and we wish you good luck with that in the future and going forward. I hope we can have you back here and you'll have some updated or, or new information about these holes and the flow of water and everything that you guys are doing. Thanks. Hopefully we'll find out a lot more information in the coming year and uh, continue the research on these sites. I hope so too. And uh, so I'm going to sign us out. And if, But if uh, anyone wants to donate to support projects like this, you can go to mo.org forward slash support, um, which is where you can just make a donation online. Mo's a nonprofit, so it helps us all out a lot. And you can even um, write in the little comment box if you want to support a particular project. Um, so, with that happy thought, uh, thanks, Jim. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. All right. This is signing out to C fans at Moat. <laughs>